This morning we are in um, Revelation chapter 2, and we'll read our text in just a bit. We're looking at the fourth of the seven churches in Revelation. The church at Thyatira, or Thyatira, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. Now, if, if the church at Pergamum, which is the church we looked at last week, was uh, the church of truth, remember they were, they were serious about doctrine and truth, but they were also willing to tolerate others who didn't hold that kind of truth. If the church at Pergamum was the church of truth but tolerance, then the church that we're looking at today, the church at Thyatira, could be called the church of service but with ignorance. In the winter of 1991, there was an issue in the University of Pacific uh, Review that uh, provides a chilling description of the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Maybe you remember that in the Ukraine in uh, 86. And uh, a couple of years ago, I decided to learn a little bit more about it, and I read a couple of books on what actually happened and took place. A lot of misinformation, a lot of information was never disseminated because it was under the control of Russia that did not want to get uh, out what actually happened. There were two electrical engineers in the control room the night that the meltdown occurred. And the best thing that we could probably say is that what they were doing is playing around with the equipment. And they were performing what the Soviets would later describe as an unauthorized experiment. They were trying to see how long a turbine would, uh, and quote, uh, free will, uh, if they took power off of it. Now, taking the power off of that turbine... And that kind of nuclear reactor is a difficult thing to do, from what I've read. It's dangerous uh, to do uh, because these reactors are so unstable in their lower ranges. And in order to get that reactor down to that kind of power where they could perform the tests that they were interested in performing, they had to manually override six separate computer-driven alarm systems. One by one, the computers would alarm. They would come up and send a message to tell the engineers to stop, that it was dangerous to go no further. And one by one, rather than shutting off the experiment, they ignored the warnings. They ignored the danger. And instead of shutting off the experiment, they shut off the alarms. And they kept going. Well, you probably know the rest of the story. Many of you, I would think, know the rest of the story. And that is nuclear fallout was the result as these reactors melted down and record fallout occurred around the world, not just in the Ukraine. It got into the atmosphere and was carried literally all over the globe, according to what I read. It was the largest industrial accident to ever have occurred in the world. But it all could have been prevented if they'd have listened to the alarms, if they had paid attention and taken seriously the warnings. Well, the church that we're looking at this morning, the church at Thyatira, was ignorant to the dangers that they faced. And Jesus warns them. He sends a message of alarm, but instead of doing something with the message, they ignored His warning they did so to their own peril and tragically to the peril of others that would come after them. 
If you're physically able to do so this morning, stand with me as we read our text this morning, beginning in verse 18, where the Scripture says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that, you, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, thank you for the messages that we have that we can look back on so that we can learn lessons that many in that setting did not. So Teach us, Father, that uh, we may learn and we may grow and we may correct. Instruct us, Father, that we not be like those who ignored the warnings. Speak to us now this morning, in this place, in these moments, we ask, open our spiritual ears um, and anoint us that we might hear, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the city of Thyatira was further inland than the others that we've looked at. You know, we had a couple of coastal cities, and then Pergamum, which was a, a bit inland, about 20 miles inland, and then Thyatira is even further in uh, even than that. It was known for its various textile trade unions. It had unions long before we probably uh, understood what unions were. They had these guilds, and, and uh, because it was such a, a, a large textile area and a city of commerce and a great city of trade. They organized themselves. There were unions for coppersmiths. There were unions for uh, fabric dyeing. You know, you remember in Acts it talks about Lydia who was uh, 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 engaged in the dyeing of fabric, purple fabric, and she was from this area. Uh, and uh, so they had these guilds, these unions. If you had a trade, a skill, there was associated with your trader skill, a guild or a, a union to protect your, your interest. And interestingly, these guilds or these unions were closely connected to the various pagan religions. They were associated with them and with uh, their various feasts 
and their expressions of immorality. In fact, they were so immoral that Christians could not associate with these guilds or these unions without compromising their testimony. Now, this area, like other uh, uh, of the churches we've looked at, uh, it was, a, it was a, a center of paganism. It had temples just like the others. It had shrines to Apollo and to Artemis and uh, Helios and Meter and, and any number of others where they could worship the various gods that we've talked about like the, the previous churches. Thyatira faced the same kind of challenges that the Christians in the other cities or among the other churches did. They were constantly being harassed for living for Christ. It was an age of Christian hostility and pressure to conform to the age. That's what they were experiencing just like the others. But of Thyatira, one preacher said this. He said, they were making progress, they were a going church, they were a growing church, and he says they were a glowing church, but they had issues. In fact, the, they had some issues that we might not immediately have picked up on. If you had visited the church at Thyatira, you probably would have said, man, what a great church, and there's no need of revival. But the Lord Jesus knew what was wrong, and the Lord Jesus knew what they needed. In a similar fashion, the Lord Jesus sees you like you are. Did you notice uh, over uh, in verse 23, it says, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus knows your condition. He didn't just know the condition of the church at Thyatira. He knew the condition of the people that made up the church there. And He sees you. He sees you like you are. He knows who you are when nobody else does. He searches your mind. He searches your heart. He knows how deceitful your heart is. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Uh, Who can know it, the Scripture says, Jesus Jesus knows your real condition. He knows where you are spiritually. He knows whether you're like those at Thyatira who were were following God wholeheartedly or whether you were like those at Thyatira who went through the motions uh, of the the faith, but inside you you were deceived and inside you believe lies. And so Jesus knows our condition. And he knows, by the way, like he did there, uh, for these people, he knows what you need to do about it. And that's one of the reasons that this church is extremely relevant for us and the age in which we live today. So I want to show you several truths about this church and about these believers. And let me caution you about something. In fact, let me just say this it applies across the board for all of these churches we're studying. The tendency is, if we're not careful, to see them as kind of generic, to see them in a broad kind of way, to see these churches and say, that's what was going on then, and that's what was going on there, and it's a corporate kind of thing. Listen, nothing becomes corporate before it first becomes individual. And so be careful that you don't give yourself a pass. I don't know where you may be. I don't know how you would stack up in any of these churches. But be careful not to give yourself a pass by overgeneralizing and saying, well, that's the church back then, but it doesn't necessarily mean me. So let me show you some things. First of all, I want you to see the description of Christ. Isn't this a beautiful description uh, of Christ in in verse 18? And to the angel of the church, remember we said that is uh, most likely the pastor, 
the words of the Son of God, and then he describes him, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You can go back uh, if you want. We'll do that at a later time. You can look uh, in chapter 1 where this similar kind of of description of Christ is earmarked for us. It's important to understand just who he is. And this is the only place, by the way, in the book of Revelation where Jesus is called the Son of God. Did you know that? That's the only place right there. When you see it, chapter 2, verse 18, that's the only place where Jesus is called the Son of God. Now, why is that? Well, it is most likely uh, to contrast who Jesus was against the Roman emperor of the day because the Roman emperors of the day, you remember I talked to you last week about how they had, uh, they had an emperor cult. They began to worship the emperors in Rome and the emperors deified themselves and demanded that people in some cases worship them. They had co- complete temples to Augustus and so the emperor was worshipped and described as a god. And do you know one of the titles used uh, in the emperor cult? It was uh, son of God. That the emperor is a son of God. And so uh, a little s and a little g, by the way. And so it's most likely that this description is given to Thyatira, who has this emperor cult in their area as well, to say the son of God Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this description portrays this, uh, this glorious kind of authority of Christ over the earthly emperor. The emperor has this kind of position, but he describes him. His eyes are like flames of fire, which, by the way, uh, reflect his divine indignation and express ultimately his judgment against those who op- oppose his rule. And it's personal in that it should remind us of some things. What should this description of Christ remind us of? It should remind us, first of all, that Jesus is God. He's the Savior. He's a friend. He is our, the lover of our soul. But He is God Almighty. Jesus said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. And when you read this description, you must be reminded that Jesus is not just a, an expression of God. Jesus is God. Jesus was God in the flesh, and we should be reminded uh, when we see the description. We should be reminded that not only is Jesus God, but God is glorious. God is glorious. Look over at chapter 4, if you will. Chapter 4 of this book, find verse 6. It's talking about the throne of God. It says, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, watch this, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders uh, fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things. 
And by your will they existed and were created. God is glorious. God is glorious. And when, when you look to Christ, you must remember you're not just looking at God. You're looking at the mighty God, the glorious God. And then you must be reminded that God is preeminent. He is the preeminent authority over all the universe. And frankly, that should invoke fear and awe and surrender. When you see encounters in the Scripture of, of, of people before God, they fall down before Him. They kneel before Him. The Bible says one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Not some tongues, every tongue. Every knee will go down in front of Him. Every knee, every tongue, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, what class? To the glory of God the Father. And I want to tell you something. You say, well, not everybody, only the believers. Oh, no. <laughs> everybody is going to hit a knee. Some are going to hit a knee and say, dear God, what have I done? And some are going to hit a knee and say, oh, thank you, God, for what I did. Put my trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. God is the preeminent authority of the universe, and those who think they're getting away with something now will one day give an account to the God, to the judge, to the awe-inspiring maker of all things. So I ask you this question. I mean, since he started that description to the church how do you see Christ that's important if you have a faulty view of Christ it will keep you from taking Christ seriously and if you don't take Christ seriously guess what you will become a victim of the enemy of your soul the second thing I call your attention to in this passage is I want you to see the deeds of ministry that's a description of Christ, but he gives us the deeds of ministry. Verse 19, I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance. And listen, that your latter works exceed your first. The fruit of their life, these, these Christians there, the fruit of their life was impressive. And Jesus calls attention to, to that. He said, I know what you're doing. There, you, there are so many things to commend them for. In particular, he commends them for four things that they were excelling at. And by the way, they were growing at those four things, he says, because the, the latter expression of these things is, is better than it was before. He acknowledges that. These four things that they were expressing, and by the way, should be characteristic of our life too. They were known for their love. You know, this is the hallmark of the believer, isn't it? Our love. It really is the hallmark because when we are loving, we are most like our Savior. It's a hallmark that should characterize every believer. Our love for God first. And then our, our love for each other. The Bible says, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my followers, you are my disciples, because you have love for one another. Our love for one another should be modeled before the world so they, they should And by the way, it should be part of the attraction to God as they say, look how these people love each other and care for each other. And so it's a hallmark for us, our love for God, our love for each other, and then our love for others. You know, we live in a world sometimes that tries to communicate to 
uh, uh, that uh, if you're not with us, we don't love you, but that's just not true. And there's a label that is often tried to apply to the church, and that is, well, they're unloving people. No, 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 no. We love, but we will not forsake the truth. We speak the truth in love. We're to love the world. We're to love those outside of these walls. And as a result of that, because of our love for God, our love for each other, and our love for those, we have a message of hope and deliverance to bring to our world. They were not only known for their love, they were known for their faith. He says that. They consistently displayed their faith in Christ, their trust in Christ. And that's important because the Scripture says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And that means we have to do more than talk about faith. We have to live by faith. Faith really for us is a verb, isn't it? Now we put our faith in Christ, but then the faith that we have expressed in Christ works itself out in how we live. Faith is a verb. If I, I trust God, I'm, I'm going to trust Him. I'm not just with, with uh, the message He's given. I'm going to trust Him with the details of my life. George Mueller, the great, one of the greatest Men of faith, I've told you for years, if you've never read a biography on Mueller, you need to. You need to read several on him. It's an incredibly inspiring story of faith. And faith, he said, does not operate in the realm of the possible. Faith doesn't operate in the realm of the possible. Why is that? Because there's no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends, he says. So faith doesn't operate in the realm of the possible. There's no glory for God in that. Faith operates where the impossible exists because then God is glorified. Hudson Taylor, who was also, you need to read biographies on Hudson Taylor too, just like Mueller, an incredible man of faith. He opened up missions in inland China. The great inland, the China Inland Mission was birthed out of that. And um, it was tough sometimes doing the work there and during an especially trying time in the work of this China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor wrote to his wife these words. Listen, we have 25 cents, but we have all the promises of God. And his life is testimony to trusting God, trusting God no matter what. They were known for their faith. They were known for their service. He called attention to their service. Here's something interesting. The Greek word for service here is diakonia. It's the same word we get deacon from. Deacons are servants. One of the things that we, and by the way, today is our last day to receive nominations for deacons for next uh, year to, for the slots that we'll elect. And so remember that if there's someone that you're thinking about nominating. But we've made clear for years that a deacon's job is not to administer the church. It is to serve the church. It's to serve the people. And I thank God for our deacons who, who understand that and practice that. But it's the same word here. They were known for their service. And by the way, it denotes service toward a master and often service of a menial sort. And, and service where you may not get, get uh, any kudos for doing it. But here's a reminder of something. Jesus sees a service, doesn't he? Really, really, we... You know, our flesh is so corrupt, isn't it? Because it needs a lot of pats on the back, doesn't it? It needs that. And there's nothing wrong with being encouraging and patting people on the back. I think Christians ought to be the most encouraging people on the planet. 
But sometimes the devil will get you to have a little spiritual pity party when somebody didn't recognize you for something you did, right? Have y'all ever been there? Four people have been there. <laughs> You've been there, haven't you? And you just, well, I would have thought they would have at least said thank you. Or, but, let me just tell you something. Remember, this word means I'm doing this for Jesus. And if man sees it, that's fine. But I'm not doing it for man. I'm doing it for Jesus. And I want to tell you, I want to promise you something. Jesus always sees service that is rendered for him. Rendered for him. Now, you may not get any credit if you do your service for someone else and try to say it was for Jesus. So keep that in mind. And they were, this is how they were. They were serving Jesus. And then he says they're known for their patient endurance. We give up so quickly, don't we? We, we give up so quickly. But, and part of it is because we live in an instant world and we lack patience. See, some of you have already got impatient because I haven't moved past the second point. <laughs> but we just, we're so, everything's so instant, right? And it causes this kind of impatience. And, and we, we struggle sometimes because of that to wait on God. And the result is that we miss the great work of God in our lives because we got too impatient. I'm working through the book of 1 Samuel. I'm going to be preaching some of that to you in the future. But one of the characteristics of Saul was not his military prowess, though that was certainly a characteristic. It was his impatience. And do you know what? He cost himself the kingdom, and he cost his offspring the kingdom because he got impatient. He got ahead. He did not wait on God. And I think, Lord, I thank you that Saul teaches us a lesson about waiting on God. The things that they are commended for are the, the good fruit in the life of these believers. You see, the truth is, your, your fruit tells a story about who you are, doesn't it? And, and the fruit of your life tells a story of who God is to you. Don't miss that. The fruit, your fruit tells the story about who you are. What's being birthed out of you through the Holy Spirit? But it also tells the story of who God is to you. Paul says, but of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there's no law. <laughs> you, do you get, there's no law against that. Here, here's what Paul was saying. When the Spirit lives in you, He's going to produce some fruit. Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good. And then he ends by saying, uh, uh, against such things are no law. Have you, ever, have you ever seen somebody say, we need, it's time for us to enact a law against love. There's too much love. We need a law. Uh, we need a law because uh, these people are too happy. There's too much joy. We need to, we need to rob some joy. We need to put a law down. Uh, we need a law against patience uh, or kindness. 
We, we need laws against it. That, have you ever thought why he adds that? He says, against such things, there, there's no law. Nobody ever makes a law against love, against joy, against patience, against kindness. Stop being patient, you're violating the law. See, that's what he means. Because when, and when the Spirit is there, listen, what you're going to do is produce fruit that no law will stand against. Isn't that good? So they had some good fruit in Thyatira, but, but there were some weeds growing up that could eventually undermine all the good fruit that was being produced. This good fruit, but weeds growing up, and Jesus knew that in spite of all the good that was characteristic of them, eventually the weed would undermine the good fruit. It would corrupt the good stuff. You, you know that's true. I mean, you, you know that if you've grown anything and you, you know that you don't say, well, I'm trying, to grow, I'm trying to grow this vegetable, but I'm also hoping that I can grow some weeds up into it too. You, you know, Jesus even talked about the, the days coming where the wheat uh, and the tares will be sifted out. There's a day coming. But you don't plan to put weeds into your garden, do you? And so what, he's, what Jesus knows is that if they don't deal with the weeds, and is, is it not amazing? By the way, I'm only going to do three points. Y'all relax. <clears throat> we'll do the other three next week. Y'all okay with that? No such thing as a bad short sermon, is there? But have you ever thought about this? Uh, that weeds, weeds, I, I mean, you can't kill weeds. Your lawn, we have the fertilizer. We have one of those companies that come every quarter and they spray fertilizer on it and everything. And, and they, but they don't kill the weeds. You know what they do? They manage them. You end up managing the weeds. My wife is always out and she'll be walking around out in front and then she's been over pulling out weeds and pulling out weeds and piling up weeds at the, at the street. She, she's working around her, her plants and her, her flowers and she's pulling out weeds. It's amazing. Weeds are incredible in their endurance, aren't they? And if you let them go, they will eventually overtake the good stuff in your yard. And they'll make it incredibly difficult to get them out at a certain point in time without destroying the good stuff, right? That's the way weeds are. Do you know that these people were doing so much that was good, but there was some weeds? Jesus saw what they were doing and commended them, but he also saw the weeds. And he said, deal with the weeds. Thank you for what you're doing. Keep doing that. You're doing it better than you've ever done it before, but deal with the weeds. Because if you don't deal with the weeds, the weeds will eventually deal with you. The weeds will eventually, and weeds don't care. In the apocalypse, or nuclear holocaust, two things are going to survive, cockroaches and weeds. They're resilient, but they mess everything up. And so Jesus is saying to them, look, in spite of this, don't 
I said it last week. Let me say it again. Don't give yourself a pass because of all the good that's going on when you're allowing weeds to grow up at the same time. You say, well, you even said, Jesus said he'd deal with the wheat and the tares. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about ultimately those who enter the kingdom versus those who had a pseudo kind of faith. They were fakers. They were fakers. So they had some good fruit. Okay, let me move on to point number three. Notice the deception of Jezebel. Verse 20. You see that? But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The deception of Jezebel. Thyatira was ignorant. They were uninformed regarding the danger that they had allowed to infiltrate the church. I almost named this message the ignorant church. But I thought that might sound a little crass, so I decided to wait till I got to talking about it. They were uninformed. They were uninformed, not because there wasn't a message there, but because they didn't understand, they didn't receive it, and they just continued like they were. They had allowed this Jezebel into the congregation, into the church there. They were just the opposite of the church at Ephesus. Remember Ephesus? The church was so orthodox. I mean, you could not accuse them of false doctrine. Not Ephesus. They were solid as a rock when it came to theology and to belief. They just had a problem, and that is that they had lost their first love. But you couldn't call them on on what they tolerated. You couldn't call them uh, ignorant. You couldn't call them uninformed. Their problem was that they had lost their love. They were just doing the motions. They were going through the the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy. They they were just carrying it on like they were supposed to, but there was no passion in them. That was Ephesus. But in Thyatira, they had love. They were loving people. You would have liked these people. They were loving people. They were patient people. They they were kind people. And they were people of faith. They they weren't ashamed of Jesus like the other churches. They weren't ashamed of Jesus. And they were being persecuted because of that. Their problem was just the opposite of Ephesus. Because they they had over-excelled in love, they put up with everything. And there's... A leader among them named Jezebel. Well, probably not really Jezebel. You see, in the Jewish mind, the title or the term Jezebel would be applied every, to every setting after the real Jezebel in which there was wickedness and deception. But this church was so loving and so patient that it caused them to allow this Jezebel to operate within and and to bring her seductive and destructive kind of teaching and her practices. And she called herself a prophetess. By the way, be careful anytime somebody tells you, I'm a prophet. If they are, you'll know they are. They won't have to tell you that they're a prophet. Because God 
will sanction them. Uh, Samuel didn't walk around saying, by the way, I am the man of God. I am the man of God. He didn't do that. They all knew he was the man of God. God will confirm that role. You, you, you hear somebody say, oh, I'm a prophet. I'm a prophetess. And there are those out there saying that today. I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. And it is a way to manipulate the hearer. To cause the hearer to have to say, well, they say they're a prophet or a prophetess. So, by the way, we've heard several in the last couple of years who claim to be prophets, and they missed on their prophecy. And you know what they should have done? And with integrity, they should have stood up and said, I missed. I missed. <clears throat> we heard it in the last election. Prophets, only a handful came back and said, I got, I got my own desires in the way. Some of them said this. Well, well, the, everything was stolen. Now, look, that may be true. I think there's some evidence that shenanigans went on. But brothers and sisters, tell me God didn't know that was going to happen. If, if that's the case, tell me that God didn't know it was going to happen, brothers and sisters. My un I'm saying to you, be careful when somebody says, I I'm not trying to get political and all of that. You just, you, if you think that, you miss the point. Do you understand the point? Be careful when somebody says they are a prophet or a prophetess. If they have to tell you they are, they probably are not. I love what Margaret Thatcher, y'all are old enough to remember. Y'all remember Margaret Thatcher? I love the line she had. <laughs> she said, if you have to tell them you're a lady, you're not. <laughs> if it's not obvious, if you have to tell them, look, if you have to tell them you're a prophet, you're not. Well, she was self-proclaiming, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophetess. And Jesus informs them that she's really Jezebel. That is, she represents the same demonic source that the original Jezebel did. I like what Vance Havner said of this passage and of Jezebel. He said, a good woman is the best thing on earth. Women were last at the cross and first at the open tomb. The church owes a debt to her faithful women which she can never estimate. To say nothing of the debt we we own in our own homes to godly wives and mothers. And then he adds this, but an evil woman is the most dangerous thing on the earth. He says that's who Jezebel was. And whoever she was in reality, verse 24 tells us that she dealt in the deep things of Satan. Now listen, friends, Jesus doesn't generalize about our life. He informed them specifically as to what and who the problem was. Why? Because Jesus wants it dealt with. Jesus doesn't deal generically in your life. He deals specifically. Have you ever noticed that the, that the devil tries to keep you from getting specific in your life as to the things that are dangerous and sinful and destructive and displeasing to God? Have you ever noticed that? You know, 
He tries to get you to be generic about your sins. Do you know why that is? Because generic sin is rarely ever dealt with. Well, Father, forgive me of my sins. Okay. I, look, I, I'm okay with that. But let me make sure that, God, you reveal to me what my sins are. And I'll deal with every one of those. So the devil can't have a stronghold in me. Am I making sense? See, he gets very specific with them. He says, the problem is Jezebel. She claims to be a prophetess. And you've allowed her to seduce and, and uh, produce worship to pagans, pagan gods, and to be, become sexually immoral, all because you, you're so like, well, you know what? We love her. You know, she, she's a nice lady. Did you know sin can be nice sometimes? Well... There are a lot of folks who really like her. And you know, we're still doing the main work of God. We're still doing the things that God has called us to. You understand what Jesus was warning? He said, yeah, but if you let the weed grow, weeds multiply faster than anything else, and they're more durable than anything else, and if they keep growing, they will eventually become your ruin." It's true in your life. That's why, look, I always ask, Lord, is there something specific I need to deal with? Not just, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Whew, that was easy. Lord, what is the specific sin in my life that you want me to deal with? I believe Jesus wants to deal with the specific sins in your life. It, look, it's been my testimony. I know when there are specific sins that I need to deal with. You know, maybe you got an anger problem that Jesus wants to deal with. Maybe you got an attitude problem that Jesus wants to deal with. Maybe, maybe you got a, a thought life problem that Jesus wants to deal with. Get specific. By the way, he's up to the task. Remember, these were believers. These were believers who had much good fruit for God in their lives. But Jesus confronts them about one thing, just one thing. You say, but it's just one thing compared to all the good. But he knows how much damage one thing in your life can do. Listen, much of their, their problems stem from ignorance and passivity. Can I ask you this morning, do you have sin in your life that you are not dealing with specifically? Is there sin that you have learned to passively ignore? It may just be one thing. Just one thing. But listen, friend, the devil will capitalize on that one thing. Is there sin that you've just decided to allow to coexist? Just, we're going to hey, coexist. Maybe you failed so many times in an attempt for victory there that you've given up the quest for victory. Listen, friend, I want to tell you this morning, don't resign to it. I don't care how many times you have failed. How many times shall I forgive my brother? Jesus was asking. He says, uh, they said seven times. He said, no, 70 times seven. And all scholars agree what he was saying was infinitely. If he asked forgiveness, you can. Now, I want to tell you something. If God can do that to you and for you, you can practice that. 
you can come to him and say, God, I failed. Now, listen, don't give yourself a pass. Say, well, I, I'll just engage in specific sin because now I know and I, I remember that message Brother Ray preached, so I'm just going to keep. No, no, listen, that's a backdoor approach. Instead, we understand that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We fight it daily in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said about this matter of worry and fear. He said, uh, take no thought for tomorrow. Each day has enough worry and concern of its own. When Jesus talked about, he talked about living daily. When Jesus talked about being a disciple, do you know what he said? He said, take up your cross daily. Daily. So you get up today, and guess what? You may fail in your, in your quest for, for victory. Don't say, it's, I've tried this so many times. Listen, don't give yourself a pass, but don't give up on yourself. Because greater is He who is in the world. I mean, who is in you than He that is in the world. So you prepare for daily battle. You put on the, the armor of God. By the way, if you didn't get a chance to hear Steve's message last Monday night, you need to go back and hear that. Sober up, suit up, straighten up. Prepare daily for the battle. Put on the full armor of God. Go read, study about it. Pray. You know, some of these things are, spiritually speaking, Ned and the first reader. It's, it's, it's Dick and Jane. It's that simple. But it's powerful and it still works. Prepare for the battle every day. Put on the full armor of God. Pray in your most holy faith, the Scripture says. This is war. It's war. Don't give up. Don't resign. But don't be ignorant. Paul said this, and the way you say this <laughs> makes it. Paul said, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. Now, this is how he really meant it. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. All preachers like this, I wouldn't have you ignorant, brethren. But here's, here's the message to them don't be ignorant. This is war. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the consequences. We're going to talk about consequences like this. Did you notice it said that he was going to throw Jezebel on her sickbed if she didn't repent? What does that mean? I'm going to talk to you about sickness. Is sickness judgment of God? I need to shut up or I'll go ahead and preach it. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about what does sickness mean in our life? Because there are some who tell us that if you're sick, you've got sin. There are others who say, no, no. So what's the deal? There is a clear message in the Scripture about it. So we'll talk about that next week. But the message today is, you got any weeds that you need to deal with? Got any weeds? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Uh, help me see the weeds. I, Lord, I've noticed that I'm real good at seeing the weeds in other people's lives. The beam, the speck in somebody else's life, missing the beam in mine. So, Father, you make known to us so that we can be clean and so that the enemy cannot undermine all that you want to do in our lives. 
Lord, I pray for those who are watching on live stream and television and listening by radio right now. I pray, Father, that they will hear your voice very clearly, whatever that may be. Maybe for some to come and give their life to Christ. For others that have tolerated and put up with Jezebel in their life. They've just got used to it. They've just resigned themselves to a peaceful coexistence. And there is no peaceful coexistence with Jezebel. And Father, I pray that you'd speak to us in these moments of invitation now. Before we're gone, speak to us, I pray. Help us to deal what we need to deal with. In Jesus' name.